Welcome to the 23rd edition of the Panama Interview Series, where we discuss topics regarding foreign direct investment in Latin America and the Caribbean. Uh, we are streaming live from the capital city of the Republic of Panama. The Panama Interview Series is produced by Beagle Legal and Compliance Consulting, LLC, a Miami Domiciled Limited Liability Corporation with offices in downtown Miami and Panama City, Panama. We provide international, commercial, and transactional legal and regulatory compliance advice and related services to manufacturers and brand owners that seek to boost profit and hedge domestic risk through international distribution in the USA and in Latin America and the Caribbean. My name is Anthony Robinson, and I'm the managing member of Beco Legal and Compliance Consulting. In this 23rd edition of the Panama Interview Series, we are honored to have as our guest, Sherry Orlowitz, founder and chair of the Board of the Council for Federal Cannabis Regulation, CFCR. CFCR is a 501c3 nonprofit based in Washington, DC. The mission of CFCR is to legitimize cannabis by assisting the federal government, its regulatory agencies, and industry to rethink, develop, and implement evidence-based cannabis regulation. CFCR brings together the stakeholders of the cannabis industry and the federal government to create a safe, workable marketplace. This morning, we will discuss recent developments in the regulation of cannabis-derived products in the Americas. We have several top topics to cover in 60 minutes. Accordingly, please put your questions in the chat, and I will submit them to our guest afterwards. Let's jump in. Sherry, how are you doing this morning? I'm great. I'm thrilled to be here and thrilled to have an opportunity to talk to the South American audience. And uh, Panama is uh, one of my more favorite places in Central America. So thank you so much for inviting me, Tony. No, we are honored. Uh, we want to take a, you know, first take a minute to understand and appreciate your background and, and, and understand who you are for, for those who may not know. And I want to take advantage of a video that is uh, informative that's on your website that does a little bit of that. So I'm going to show that right now. If I can get my uh, sound to work. Well, it was working before. Well, we're going to talk directly to you about who you are. Tell us about your background and what brought you to CFCR. Well, it was a long journey. Um, my background started in New York City as, as my professional background as an actor for seven or eight years, then went to um, law school and became a federal prosecutor, um, also a trial attorney for the Department of Justice. Federal prosecutors are actually different than trial attorneys. Trial attorneys represent the government agencies. And that's how I began to learn about the U.S. government. From there, I had the opportunity to do what's called leverage buyouts. Um, I, with two other people, um, bought relatively small, but by most people's standards, large corporations and companies from um, major companies such as Kodak, Tyco, Applied Magnetics, and I did leverage buyouts with a very small team of people for 20 years. Um, we were not the typical financial engineering kind of organization. I actually ran the companies as CEO and CFO, along with my team as general counsel and um, finance directors. 
And we really saved jobs and created new opportunities for old companies that were in the portfolio of these large corporations. And from there, um, I actually developed a 20-unit condo in Adams Morgan in Washington, D.C. And um, I ended up about 2007 retiring, 2008 retiring for um, a grand total of three years. And I'm sorry, go ahead. No problem. And then actually went back to business um, doing consulting. And one of the consulting opportunities that came my way was to help a woman to raise three to five million dollars for her landscape business. To make a long story short, she applied for one of the first licenses along with close to 200 other people to grow cannabis in Maryland. Um, asked if I would write the application. I looked at um, the law. I was not doing anything illegal by writing the application and it looked fascinating and so I did. And that's how I got into the cannabis industry. Um, mm -hmm. My background and family is kind of philanthropic. Um, and as I was on the board of uh, MPP and the Marijuana Policy Project, um, I would say is one of the key organizations responsible for ending prohibition, I became aware of a complete lack of resources for this new industry. While the government was beginning to allow states to legalize cannabis, it was not doing anything about astronomical taxes. Here in the United States, we have a tax known as 280E which means that you can't deduct ordinary business expenses, which left most cannabis industries that were following um, the IRS code broke. And that's why there are no resources. And so I built CFCR number one to create um, an attractive platform for mainstream industry to begin to develop the interest and to become educated about the cannabis industry because it was my understanding and belief that the cannabis industry was going to become a significant driver of jobs and um, employment. And indeed, it is certainly moving in that direction. And the second reason is having come from the United States government, I understood personally um, from talking to many people that regulators did not understand cannabis. And it was critical from my standpoint that regulators be educated and education is really the number one focus of CFCR. We are the organization you go to to get accurate information, unbiased information because we are a nonprofit and because we are nonpartisan. And someone to talk to those regulators is always much better if it's someone like me, who came from DOJ and also worked for the Commerce Department and the State Department and to some extent for this president, that kind of credential is important to establishing trust. And one of the things lacking in the cannabis industry in the United States is trust from the manufacturing process to the products that you buy on the shelves to what you're really getting. Um, there's so many problems that we face today in the cannabis industry that regulators are going to have to deal with. What's the and biggest obstacle to, to understanding cannabis, do you think? Is it, uh, is it that it's complicated scientifically or is it that it's a, uh, you know, a cultural construct that uh, is blocking our ability to understand the benefits? I think 
when you think about how cannabis developed in the United States and how prohibition developed in the United States, there was a campaign to discredit cannabis and to create a, um, an aura around it of evilness. And that went on till, the, and I'm talking about in the 30s. Um, it was certainly uh, a religious as much as a government um, shutdown of the cannabis industry. And in the United States, it was right after prohibition of alcohol was lifted. And frankly, our Bureau of Narcotics needed something else to do. So it became the Bureau of Narco Nar Narcotics. It used to be um, a bureau that went after um, alcohol. So there's a lot of nefarious reasons why cannabis in the United States has gotten to where it is today. And we want to address those issues as well. The fact is that harms were created intentionally and um, probably the most important reason for me and CFCR is to intentionally address the harms created by our drug policies. And those harms would be in the, in the, in the criminal justice system and, and uh, where else would you well, kind of remediate? <laughs> you know, I'll tell you, it is. It has destroyed people's lives. It's destroyed families' lives. Our laws have been, um, and and we all know they've been impl implemented in a racist fashion. Um, it is not by happenstance that uh, the um, black and brown folks are four times as likely to end up in prison. Um, right now, there's a gentleman in Louisiana who sold one joint and is in for 20 years of hard labor. Wow. And that's just recent. Yeah. Well, there's a lot of work to be done. Why, um, why is uh, the legitimization of cannabis important to the well-being of Americans? Why is it critically important? We have an opportunity with cannabis to understand its medicinal quality. And because of the way the United States went at it, and, and I, I, I believe the United States is really responsible for the prohibition of cannabis worldwide. Um, and I think what is absolutely critical is it shut down the ability to study cannabinoids. There was one brave company that knew there was medicinal properties, GW Pharma, and they developed Epidiolex. And as you, many people know, Epidiolex is CBD, um, in sesame oil and, and jazz pharmaceutical will tell you it's not just CBD. There are other constituents, but the active ingredient is CBD, but there are other parts. And I, I, I think we all still believe in the entourage effect that um, cannabis is a holistic um, drug. This is the one you charge from you from one of your white papers that goes through some of the, uh, the benefits. You know, we today have um, at, the, at NIH, we have um, a registry of many of the cannabis studies that have been done. Something very important to understand about the United States is we supported and provided grants to many people and many researchers throughout our country. But the requirement was to show why cannabis was a bad drug. So a lot of the studies done by NIH and other um, government industry, uh, government agencies really had a very significant bias until recently. 
And only now, and, and thanks to Epidiolix, that's been a, you know, that has been something the FDA cannot or anybody can't dispute. Before that, we had Marinol and Semit, which is um, useful as a pharmaceutical for nausea. But frankly, people tell me that the whole plan is much better for nausea than these individual drugs. I don't know. Again, this is anecdotal. Right, and, and, and if there's any pushback on uh, uh, cannabis products and uh, CBD-derived or cannabis-derived products, it's gonna be on safety and that efficacy. Would you, would you agree with that? First and foremost, um, in the United States, any new ingredient that is going to be put into the stream of commerce has to go through the FDA if it's gonna be ingested. And so from the FDA standpoint, um, safety is absolutely number one. Efficacy and dosing are very important. The way the drug is manufactured, the pesticides that are used, the chemistry and composition, all of that's important. Well, that's the And they frankly all go to safety and efficacy. Right. Um, let, let's discuss some of the recent developments in the regulation of cannabis derived products in the Americas. Let's start with Canada and, uh, you know, work our way down the map. So about almost a year ago, Health Canada published this white paper on the efficacy and safety of uh, cannabidiol and came out with, uh, you know, released conclusions that uh, weren't new to the industry, but resonated because they were articulated by a well-respected you know, a health services institution, and they were definitive statements about safety of, uh, of, um, of CBD. And I just wanted to go through kind of what I thought were the, were the two most important conclusions. Um, and this is an excerpt from the study and is concluding that uh, no more than 30 days and no more than 200 milligrams a day. When you get past that, um, dosage and amount of time you need uh, your, you know, doctor's advice and counsel um, only for healthy adults, not for uh, lactating pregnant women. Um, this is not new, right? I mean, this is not something that the industry didn't know, but it's very definitive um, coming from Health Canada. The second piece, and we can just talk about what you think about these two conclusions, was um, Health Canada saying that um, concluding that labels need to communicate uh, information about dosage. They need to have um, warnings about uh, toxicity uh, and that um, um, it's important to uh, understand the mix between CBD, drugs and alcohol and other pharmaceuticals and pharmaceuticals you might be taking. Right. And then they, you know, they listed out some of the um, the side effects, uh, the adverse effects of, uh, of, of CBD, you know, confused thinking, nausea, et cetera, here at the top of the. So what do you think is going what has been the ramification of this study? Uh, and what do you think will be the does it have legs in any way with respect to restricting, you know, the, the development of the industry? I think the concern around CBD um, is uniformly held. Um, it's not to most of the states um, an innocuous molecule. But the way the various countries are treating it, 
um, is, is very different. And it is only most recently that um, Europe stopped um, CBD, for example, uh, from going up the novel food pathway as they try to figure out dosage and toxicity. It seems that Health Canada feels it has understood, it understands dosage and toxicity. And um, I have to be perfectly honest, I haven't read what they base their dosing on. Um, I have seen total daily intake is low, su suggested as low as 17 milligrams. And I have seen total daily intake of CBD um, as high as 300 milligrams in studies um, with no ill effects. So the understanding of CBD, I think, is totally inconclusive in the United States based only on the studies that have been done to date. It is unsafe and unlawful to put into products. And that's in part based by studies that were done on rats. And most of the studies that have been done have been done on rats. It's been toxic to rats. And the thing that I have been told by scientists is humans do not metabolize the way that rats do. However, when you get, when you move beyond studies of um, pigs or people, it's very expensive. So that's where we are right now. And that's why I say, based on the existing science, the FDA has concluded CBD is not safe, that it is toxic and it is unlawful to put into products. And another concern that FDA has is, is interaction with other drugs. And um, as from what I understand, and again, um, not conclusively that CBD is very reactive to many drugs. So, are, so, so Health Canada's conclusions, are they, are they anecdotal? I mean, have they, have they moved, have they influenced, you know, uh, the thought um, in the community uh, policy-wise and, and, and science-wise, or, or, or no? Because um, the studies that are being done in various states are different. For example, Europe did a bunch of toxicology, toxicology studies with a um, clinical research organization, and the dosing was way lower, um, the recommended dosing. So the U.S. has taken the position that it is not looking beyond its borders. That is what the commissioner said. And surprisingly, um, everything that exists from Israel, from Canada, and from Europe will be anecdotal to the U.S. with regard to the development of medicinal cannabis, at least now. With regard to CBD, the FDA has said it does not have the authority to regulate CBD because it's unsafe. And its job, the FDA's job as a public safety institution is to keep things that it believes is unsafe from being in the stream of commerce. So it's gone back to Congress and said to Congress, and here's my interpretation, like alcohol, like tobacco, you need to tell us what you want us to do. We're telling you based on the existing science, it's unsafe. Right. And then over the last year, the FDA has been active in shaping regulation uh, around cannabis-derived products. Uh, they issued warning letters to four companies, as we see here, for selling CBD products intended for the use in food products for animals, which was, uh, you know, not only protecting the animals, but also trying to protect uh, humans who are eating the animals and whatever toxicity may result from that. 
Um, they uh, issued uh, uh, warning letters with respect to beverage, uh, CBD and beverages, right? So all the, what you've talked about, the, you know, I think the interesting uh, activity was the guidance that uh, FDA gave us, uh, you know, the beginning of the year this year, uh, with respect to the conclusion that you just articulated that, that uh, you know, CBD is not to be in food, in conventional food or dietary supplements. Um, so was this uh, the timing of this? What was behind the timing of this? I don't think that this was new thought, nothing. When it, what, what was the impetus for this guidance? at this point in time? Well, the, F the FDA looked at, um, let's see, back I believe in April of 2018, 2019, I can't remember when, the FDA had a large meeting during which it asked the public and um, organizations to please submit to it those things that would support CBD in the stream of commerce. And to this day, we don't have, despite the tens of thousands of papers submitted, we don't have anything that establishes the safety of um, CBD. As, and I should say this, we have a drug pathway and CBD as a drug has certain requirements going up the drug pathway. As many people know, developing a drug in the United States can take upwards of five to seven years and can cost as much as you know a billion dollars. I would suggest that that is not something the the, the nascent cannabis industry can frankly afford, no less look into. So obviously that's the province of pharma and pharma is doing what pharma has always done. And the various other companies that are trying to develop CBD products had hoped it would go up the vitamin and supplement pathway and it would be treated such as a vitamin and supplement. Now where I believe the FDA will land on this is somewhere between vitamins and supplements and pharmaceuticals. Vitamins and supplements go on to market without any kind of product listing and without having to prove safety and efficacy before they go on to, they go on to market. I think that's going to change. I do believe that CBD in the United States, the way Congress will ultimately rule on this is to request a product listing and it may need pre-market approval. So it's going to be treated differently, but um, it's not going to be requ the requirements of pharmaceutical and it's not going to be as lax as vitamins and supplements where the United States waits for um, uh, an adverse effect. In the meantime, the United States is in fact capturing as many adverse effects from CBD as it can in order to understand. And there have been quite a number. Is that the problem? I'm sorry, I see you have up there um, about CBD products intended for use in food producing animals. And then we have people who have put THC in and we've had stoned cows. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you have read the article on the stone cows, but that was very interesting. Uh, uh, so was it a good thing for the cows or was it uh, ultimately a bad thing for the cows? I don't think anybody understood what the cows were saying. So we, we <laughs> needed a linguist and we just didn't have it. Right, right. <laughs> well, the, the, the question is, is, is this the appropriate balance? I mean, and, and that is your bailiwick, right? Because you're in the middle of the policymakers and the stakeholders and, and you, you have 
conversations and a dialogue with with all sides. Is this the appropriate proper balance between, you know, the 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 personal need and desire for access to products that can help us feel better and, and improve our health, and you know, the legitimate need of the government to protect, you know, uh, public health. I, I here, here's how I'll answer this. Based on what the FDA said, it did not have regulatory authority, so it could not regulate CBD. Now the question becomes not only who should regulate CBD and how. So you have two questions. Are they, the federal government, going to go back to FDA and agree to establish a new regulatory framework for CBD? Um, or are they going to go to another agency? Personally, I am. I think it's clear what they're going back to FDA. I don't think they have a choice. Other folks in the United States um, have different perspectives on that. Um, I think that the balance being struck between safety and the need of the public, the use of the public is best in the hands of Congress to decide. And that's where it is. And Congress will decide um, if CBD will become, and I, I, I think it certainly will, will be in the stream of commerce. I think we have to accept that CBD is everywhere in the United States, and it's much more important that we get it labeled correctly so vulnerable populations, most especially, are aware and stay away if they should. Right. I mean, I think we all understand that we, we in the United States live in a, a, a system, a federal and a state system, but um, there, it, when it comes to cannabis regulation, there's no harmony between them. It, you know, we've got products in states in Colorado and Florida and some other states which uh, are almost opposite of what the federal government is saying and its guidance with respect to how the products are being regulated. Um, you know, uh, is that going to, uh, are we going to see any meeting of the minds or any harmonization, do you think, between uh, what the states are doing and what the federal government is going to do regulatory wise. Yeah, but it's going to take time. I mean, here's how here's here's thumbnail of how the U.S. government works. Let's say Congress says, yes, CBD should be in food and it should be in in vitamins and supplements and UFDA create a regulatory scheme for it. The FDA takes three to five years to write regulations. That's a long time. <laughs> so um, it's going to be interesting to see how long it takes to get regulations on the marketplace because the stage, generally the way it works, FDA gives minimum requirements that the states adhere to. So they're, they're free to do more, but they have to meet the minimum requirements. So that process, three to five years to write regulations in what, another year or two for Congress to make. We're talking seven years. It's a long time. Right. But and, um, so we need to get something in the marketplace sooner. That's one thing I'm clear on. We can't go through our normal process. We really have to move. And that's part of the reason for CFCRs to start to educate people that no, CBD can affect your blood pressure medicine. You know, you, you people that are in their 50s, 60s, 70s need to know this. And by the way, we have a big 50, 60, 70 group that is using CBD and whatever else they can get their hands on. So it, it can it can harm you at, 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 uh, at high dosages. Interacting with the other things you're taking to, help, to try to help you out. 
Absolutely. So seniors have to be, you know, seniors in vulnerable populations really have to be careful because the science has not dealt with the issues. Right, right. Well, in Latin America, um, we've got a sort of a patchwork of, uh, you know, regulatory scheme. Each country is its own sovereign with respect to how they're handling their regulating these products. Uh, most of the uh, countries uh, have um, illegal, you know, it's still illegal uh, for recreational use. Um, many countries within the, uh, within the region have uh, passed legislation for medical marijuana and medical cannabis use and, and for therapeutic use. Um, but uh, it, uh, it, is, it is still uh, a, a question of education. Um, and my understanding is still a, a, um, a there is still um, there are barriers to understand the difference between THC and products that don't have THC in them. Uh, so you know there's still a, a barrier to understand you know the difference between you know traditional marijuana and the thought about a controlled substance and um, the promise of you know uh, CBD products and their therapeutic potential. Uh, so. You know the what we and what I hope to through this conversation is to uh, get from you some uh, understanding of how governments can strike that balance between uh, the need for individuals to be able to access these products to 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 meet their health needs and you know the need for the government to protect people and to serve public health. What are some of the touch points that Latin American governments should be, uh, you know, thinking about when they're trying to strike that balance. One of the biggest problems in the United States is how legalization affects all of our other laws. So rationalizing the laws of the various um, states uh, in, in Latin America um, is probably critical. Um, in the United States, we've made recommendations to the executive office of the president that they start with an interagency um, group and some of the advocates and organizations, because that, if it's not done, create will create absolute chaos. We've got to rationalize, or, and one of the big problems with um, cannabis laws is the um, unfair implementation of those laws. And what I'm concerned about, if we were to immediately legalize cannabis without rationalizing all of these laws, is a lot of people are gonna get hurt. And so rationalizing across the various issues within each of the states is critical. And then, you know, get going with some kind of regulatory scheme. Uh, a regulatory scheme needs to take into account the fact that it is and how do you label and how do you try to protect the way that you can access it? Should it be in Oreo cookies, for example? Should it be in chewing gum? Should it be in toothpaste? You know, these are things that our incredibly creative folks are gonna think about. So that's the second thing. I think they need to think about the products and modalities of delivery. Right. I mean, uh, that's one thing that the FDA has spent some time uh, in focusing on uh, the the inclusion of CBD and products that um, are 
copycat products is one of the terms that's used, or the people could be legitimately confused about whether the, the product could be toxic to them because it looks like a conventional food. It looks, you know, it looks like a, a muffin or something, you know? So, um, so that's definitely an area of risk. Um, the, uh, how do governments uh, carve out an area where people who have legitimate needs for therapeutic CBD get them at the same time that they educate or protect people who don't have access to education and information about the products. That's the, it seems to me, the, the difficult issue in the region is that um, the barrier to information uh, is such that um, uh, it, it, the government has a greater need and a greater obligation to, uh, to protect the, the population and, and maybe value lower the individuals need to get to, to the to the product that they that might help them. Well, we have a huge legal market in the United States, I'm sure elsewhere too. And that has to be balanced as well. So people are going to get it. That's the end of the day. My biggest complaint, and I think the industry's biggest complaint is the amount of time it is taking because it is a public health issue. It, and it's a safety issue that is concerning many because in the United States, because of a loophole in the farm bill, you can sell intoxicating cannabinoids in gas stations. You can sell intoxicating cannabinoids in convenience stores and they look like children's candies. And when a parent picks up, you know, a package of gummies and takes it home and it's, the kids get their hands on it, it's really of concern. And we're in this country needing to crack down on what's called these, these copycat um, modes of delivery, um, trying to make it seem friendly and safe when at times you cannot eat the whole package of gummies. You know, I'll tell you a quick story. There was a party and they had little cupcakes. Uh -huh. It looked like it said 10 milligrams, but they were 100 milligrams. And I literally was there celebrating a friend's um, debut on the NASDAQ. And these um, little cupcakes, 10 milligram was 100 milligrams. And people were dropping like flies. It was terrible. Just there's lots to be concerned about. There really is. And that was obviously not a um, state sanctioned operation. <laughs> right, right. When you look at the landscape in, in Latin America, this this map gives us uh, the comparative, a comparative look at regulations for cannabis in key Latin American markets. You know, the most aggressive areas, Uruguay um, uh, stand, you know, it, it has been the pioneer in that area is, has very high government regulation, their co-ops, their government is uh, involved in, in, in master formulas and um, it is, is uh, more regulation has helped in, in that environment to advance the, uh, the consumption of the product in the situations where it's really needed. Um, so, I mean, that's one example of, uh, you know, should we be thinking about maybe more regulation? Should the federal governments be taking, uh, you know, a stronger hand and trying to make sure that uh, in, the, in, a, in an environment of lack of information, uh, the people who really need CBD for health reasons are, are able to get it. And, and, and I 100% agree. And I 
you know, I am aware of Uruguay as being the first um, country in Latin America to legalize. Um, it is prohibition is a failed policy. And getting out of prohibition is obviously difficult. And I've been following Uruguay and it seems to be doing a reasonably good job and things seem to be, and I'm not a student of Uruguay, but probably should be more of a student of Uruguay and how they are progressing. Well, just to put some facts on it in the region, uh, medicinal use of cannabis is permitted in Brazil, Panama, Puerto Rico, Costa Rica, Colombia, Argentina, Chile, Ecuador, Jamaica, uh, Paraguay, Peru. Um, while recreational use is only permitted in Uruguay, Jamaica, and, and Mexico at this point, uh, in, unless I'm missing some very, very recent changes. Uh, and uh, there is a uh, very uh, different uh, levels of decriminalization uh, at, at small levels of personal use, uh, recreational. Ecuador has uh, decriminalized rec recreationally CBD. Um, and there is a uh, there's a one percent threshold for uh, THC and medicinal uh, hemp in Ecuador, and um, and Panama is on the forefront of uh, one of the uh, first countries, or if not the first country in Central America to have a uh, medical cannabis legislation. And we recently, within the last month, um, have started a framework by which uh, some manufacturing of um, cannabis-derived products uh, for therapeutic use can happen domestically. So there's a lot going on. It's not a question of, uh, of if, it's just a question of when. Um, you know, we get to a point of wider use and maybe decriminalization through the through through the region, um, but it it, it um, we need a CFCR in Latin America, or we need CFCR to come, you know, bless Latin America with its with its gifts, to uh, you know to bring the stakeholders together, so that the conversation can happen effectively, efficiently, and and uh, so that we can get a proper balance. Um, and break down some of the you know cultural uh, stig stigmas that have that are inhibiting the use and uh, and growth of the industry. Well, I, you know, one of the things that you say about CFCR and one of the things I hope and I imagine Latin America is doing is bringing together Brazil, Panama, Puerto Rico, Costa Rica, Argentina, again in a roundtable, and they should be working together to develop the various laws um, and begin to bring harmony so that we're not constantly dealing with this patchwork of laws where, gee, I'm in Uruguay and it's okay. And now I go to um, Chile and I have a problem. And that's what we have in the United States. Um, you can be in Nebraska and nothing's legal. So this has to be dealt with. And in the United States, the way it's supposed to be dealt with again, is minimum requirements for public safety are set out by the FDA. Um, and that is set out for all the states. Unfortunately, as I shared with you, it's going to take three to five years for this to happen. Um, and roundtables for the United States government and probably Latin America, the countries need to think about getting together and developing a holistic policy 
decriminalization, number one. Craziness that this was ever criminalized. Right, and trying to remediate some more, deal with some of the harms that have happened in the past over laws that, uh, that maybe weren't uh, as just as they should have been. Well, I, I want to thank you so much for your time. Uh, we're honored to have you with us this morning. It's a really important topic, and you're doing really uh, important work. And we hope that we can uh, maybe get you again uh, another day, because this is an area that's uh, there's a lot of movement and a lot of development in, in, in this area. Um, and we'd love to be able to talk to you again. Well, I will tell you, some exciting things are coming up in the United States in terms of cannabis policy. Rescheduling. What the President of the United States did in October of last year is make a systematic, seismic change in U.S. policy. The fact that he has turned to his agencies and said, you need to take a look at the scheduling of cannabis and how it is upended so many lives and consider whether it should be rescheduled. That is so huge for the United States. And I think all of the countries should start getting together. We all got together on the single convention. Let's all get together and undoing it. Right. <laughs> Important words to, to end our conversation. Sherry, thank you. It's been an honor and uh, we appreciate your time. And I appreciate you. Thank you for the good work that you're doing and the information that you're providing. It's critical. And um, happy to answer any questions of your constituency and happy to be available for providing information to your audience. So thank you so much. All right. Take care. We'll talk to you soon. Okie doke. Have a great day. Enjoy it.